Well, again, good morning, Hershey Free. Hey, it's great to see you. My name is George Davis. Thanks for joining us. As you can tell, this is a different Sunday morning, as Dave mentioned. We'll be celebrating with uh, 15 people and their families during the second service at a time of baptism, and I too want to echo the invitation. If you're able to join us, that would be great, because this is one of those family moments in the life of a church when we get to celebrate what God is doing in the lives of people and to hear their stories. So if you can join us, that would be great. Also, just know that we'll be recording those, and you can check them out later this week on our YouTube page if you're not able to be with us. So if you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me ask you, has this ever happened to you? Some of you are students. Maybe you remember your student days, depending on what they were like. Did, did this ever happen to you? you? You came to the end of the semester... And there had been that project in one of your classes. And you knew about it. It was on the syllabus. But you just, you know, there were other things to do. Other enjoyable activities to pursue over the course of the semester. And now you're kind of in the final week of classes and you realize, oh my goodness, there's that project that I was supposed to be working on all semester and I just never got around to it. And maybe 48 hours later, without any sleep, the project is kind of put together even in a roughshod manner, uh, but you turn it in. You're, do you ever have that kind of feeling? Or maybe some of you, have you had this kind of conversation? You're, you're meeting with your financial advisor as you near retirement. And it's, it's, it's a heavy conversation because you realize maybe you haven't been planning as well as you thought you were over the last few years. Again, there have been other things to do, <laughs> other reasons to spend money. And, and now as you're getting closer, you realize your retirement's going to be a little more complicated because you're not really where you need to be financially. Or has this happened to you? You find yourself seated, maybe in, on a couch, your couch, your favorite chair in your apartment or your home, and you've just had a really major argument with someone close to you, a friend, a member of your family, your spouse, a child, your parent. And you're sitting on your couch, you're sitting in this chair, and you were just fuming. And you realize that conversation didn't go well. You realize really hard and awful words were said, perhaps by all parties involved. And you realize as you're sitting in this chair, it's the, the problem isn't simply this last conversation, this last argument. The problem is somehow in this relationship, we've, we've just been moving apart, right? We've just been, and, and now we're here. And you find yourself kind of look, looking back, and you're not just thinking about this immediate moment. You're thinking about, how did we get here? Now, these three scenarios I've just given you, they're very different scenes, right? 
very different experiences, even perhaps very different seasons of life, but they have this in common. In each of these scenes, we kind of see the reality of kind of working through life and and at least in part of our life, having a a certain sense of apathy or complacency, right? You're just kind of comfortable with the way things are and you're moving through life and with that apathy and complacency, whether it involves finances or your schoolwork or your work or your relationships, somehow that, that apathy, that complacency leads us to a point where we realize we have not fully anticipated the dangers, the consequences that came with the choices we were making all along the way. Now, here's what I want you to see this morning, right? This pattern can be true in relationships. This pattern can be true in how we approach our work. This pattern can be true in how we approach our finances. And this pattern can also be true spiritually in how we engage God. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we come back to our journey through Revelation chapters 2 and 3. If you're joining us for the first time over the last couple of weeks, we're in this series where we're looking at just two chapters in the book of Revelation. As it turns out, this book, this kind of very dramatic book, is written specifically to seven churches. And in chapters two and three, each of these churches gets its own little letter. Each of these churches is addressed individually. And in each of these letters, Jesus is speaking directly to these followers of Christ saying, look, here's some things that you need to overcome if you're to continue to follow me well. And these churches are in different stages of health. In some of the churches, Jesus is also able to celebrate. Here's some things you're doing well. But with each of these churches, there's, there's kind of this invitation. Continue to follow me. Overcome the obstacles that are getting in your way as my followers. And this morning... We're going to come to a church that in some sense is less dramatic than the other churches. It's it's in essence just a group of people that in some sense I would say have drifted away. In the book of Hebrews, the author warns, don't drift away. And you know, when you think about it, what does it take to drift? Absolutely nothing, right? You just, you just go with the current. Some of you have had this experience on a vacation. You're by a river, you're at the ocean, beach, someplace where there's a current. And, you know, you got really comfortable out on that raft or that flotation device. Maybe you fell asleep and you wake, wake up and it's, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm, am I in a place I didn't want to be? Why? Because I've just been carried along by the current. The truth is that can happen spiritually as well. So this morning, as we continue our journey through these seven letters to seven churches, we come to the church at Sardis. Now, let me just kind of continue to remind you of the geography. So we've kind of started at Ephesus, and we're kind of working our way around this loop, and we're now reading the letter to the church at Sardis. And unlike some of the other letters that we read in these two chapters, this group of Christians doesn't seem to be facing intense persecution. Unlike other churches, 
It doesn't seem like there's this dramatic, egregious sin that is at work at the church, in the church or that they are facing the, the pending danger of, of false teachers. There's no visible crisis here. The problem is just they've drifted. They've gone with the flow of everything around them. And I think in describing what's going on here, we, we can use terms like they've become apathetic, complacent about being followers of Jesus. And perhaps this doesn't seem like a big deal. It's like, not like there was this one dramatic moment where they really got off course. They just, they just drifted. And I think as we see in this letter, Jesus wants them. Jesus wants us to understand as he addresses their complacency. He wants us to understand that complacency isn't just a bad thing. It can be a deadly thing. To show you what I mean, let's now come to Revelation chapter 3. To the letter written to this church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now notice this, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Those are heavy words, aren't they? And you will notice that, that unlike other letters, not all, but other letters, in these two chapters. There's, no, there's really no commendation in this letter, right? With some of the letters, it sounds like Jesus is saying, look, look, guys, here's some things we can really celebrate in the life of your church, but here's some things you need to work on to continue growing in your relationship with me, to continue moving forward well. But here, it, no, we don't get that. Jesus is abrupt, he's direct, he's straightforward. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. These are heavy words. And interestingly, as, as we're going to see in a moment, <laughs> Jesus is going, to, is going to tell this church, wake up. And he's also going to tell them that if they're not careful, there's something within them that is dying. He's going to say, wake up. And it's like you're, you're sleepwalking through life. You're apathetic. You're complacent. You're, you're just drifting. So what exactly is going on here? Well, I actually believe uh, this is a place where perhaps the archaeology of this area can help us. Sardis was a very thriving, you know, kind of a thriving city. It had a rich history. And, and when you go to kind of what, it, what you would consider the central part of the ancient city of Sardis, one of the things Sardis is known for is this amazing Roman bath complex. Let me just show you kind of how it's been reconstructed in Sardis. It's this massive Roman bath. And to give you just a, a greater sense of how big it is, there's a second picture. And, and this part of the central area of the city would have been surrounded by shops. A lot of commerce was in this area. It was really the heartbeat of the city. So much activity going on here. And interestingly, right next to this large Roman bath complex, you find a Jewish synagogue. And here's 
was part of that synagogue. Let me show you a, a second picture of that synagogue just to give you a, a, a sense of its size. It's a very large synagogue. In fact, in the Roman world, this is the largest known synagogue outside of Israel. And one of the fascinating things about this synagogue is, and this was common in Roman construction, you would often build new buildings with, the kind of the <laughs> with supplies from older buildings that perhaps had been taken down. That's true with this synagogue, and one of the crazy things when you visit this, this synagogue is there's the table that sits right at the front of the synagogue, and on this table you will find a Roman eagle. It had come from some previous building. I mean, this is the symbol of the Roman Empire, and you now find it in a Jewish synagogue. Now, as it turns out, this synagogue dates after the time of the New Testament, but it apparently was built on the foundations of earlier buildings, including an earlier synagogue. And here's what I think this kind of archaeological evidence tells us as we think about a synagogue being in, in the middle of the city, even a later synagogue where they're willing to incorporate Roman symbols into their building. What this tells us is Sardis has a very large Jewish population. And the Jewish population in this community seems to be well integrated into the civic life of the area. Now, here's what I think this meant for Christians then. I think for Christians, it meant it was really possible just in this community, kind of based on certain factors, just, just go with the flow. Go with the flow, kind of fit in, and, and you don't have to be distinctive, and, and if you do that, you know, people are going to view you favorably and things, so you just kind of drift. You just kind of drift along with culture. You drift along with the current. And that's exactly what was going on here. And, and Jesus says, look, I know you have the reputation for being alive, and it kind of feels like everything, at least externally, is going well, but the truth is you're dead and you're dying. In fact, if you want a more literal translation of the, let me just kind of give you a little more literal translation of what Jesus says here. He says, you have a name of being alive. And it's almost like, in our terminology, Jesus was looking at this church and going, hey, folks, you know what? You're Christian, but in name only. This is heavy. This is weighty. And again, I think perhaps for some this was hard to hear, but, it, you know, it's, like, it's, it's not like they, we've gone through this major crisis. It's not like it feels like we've got people living kind of blatantly in sin or succumbing to false teachers or experiencing persecution. We just, we just kind of drifted. We've just gone with the flow and we felt everything was going good. And, and Jesus says, look, I know you carry my name, but you are dead and dying. So let's ask this question. So what, what exactly does this look like in our context? What, what does it look like to be a Christian in name only? I think there are a couple of ways we can answer that question. On the one hand, here's what it means for some people. I think for some people it means they may describe themselves as Christians, but they've never been genuinely converted. 
They may describe themselves as a Christian, even though they have never responded to Christ in repentance and faith. Christian Smith is a well-known uh, sociology who's done some very significant sociological work nationally on religious trends in America. And in a very influential book, he, he reached this conclusion after uh, you know, a very extensive research done by his research team. He said this. He said, for many Americans, here's how, here's how we think about God. We think the world's been created by God and he watches over human life. We think he wants us to be good and right and fair to each other. We think that, we all, well, the, the central goal of human experience is to be happy. And we think that God doesn't actually need to be involved in our lives unless we encounter a problem that we can't handle and then we ask for help. He actually called this viewpoint moral therapeutic deism. And he said, that's the way a lot of people think about God in our culture. And the truth is, you, you can think about God that way without being genuinely converted, without truly knowing Jesus Christ, without resting in the truth of the gospel and putting your faith and trust in him. So... If that's where you're at this morning, I think part of the invitation of this passage to you is to actually take the message of Jesus seriously. On the other hand, you know, maybe I have truly put my faith and trust in Christ. Yet in some sense, I'm a Christian in name only for this reason. This new identity, this new relationship really isn't foundational to how I live. You know, I do certain things, right? Hey, I go to church, I, I read my Bible, maybe I pray before meals. You know, there are certain things I do. But in a real sense, in so many ways, I'm, I'm just going through the motions. I really don't do anything to make this a priority. Right? I do these things, I'm involved in certain ways when it's convenient, when it fits into my schedule. And, and here's a way, I, I maybe see if this will help. I mean, I, I, I think for some people it's like this. It's like, it's like, you know what, being a Christian is just a compartment of my life. And, and at certain times, you know, I pull this box off the shelf, I go to church, Certain times, maybe, you know, I feel a need to pray for certain things because my life's gotten complicated, so I pull the box off the shelf. I'm a Christian. But other times, I just kind of put the box back off the, on the shelf, and I live out of other compartments. I live out of other boxes. And what that means is, for me, being a Christian, it's like, it's a compartment of my life. It's a box, one of many boxes, but it's not the... It's not the reality that holds all of my life together. It's a compartment of my life. It's a part of my life. But it's not the integrating whole of my life that's at the center of everything else. And this can happen. And what happens is you just kind of drift. 
And tragically, over the course of time, you may find yourself living out the consequences, the dangers that have come with the decisions you have made all along the way because you've been willing just to drift, just to go along with the flow. So why do we do this? How do, <laughs> how do we kind of end up in this approach to life? There are a number of answers to that question. Let me just highlight a couple of them. I think sometimes we kind of just find ourselves drifting, just kind of going along with the flow, kind of just, kind of just complacent or apathetic spiritually, just because our lives have gone through maybe changes in circumstances or some kind of change in circumstances. I've hit a new season of life, something has changed in my life, and now things got all mixed up. I mean, even for some people, the truth is we, we all went through this radical change called COVID, and then through COVID, maybe we developed other new habits, new patterns, new priorities, and somehow just through the, through the result of these changes, kind of being a follower of Jesus no longer has the level of priority that it once did. Ryan Burge is um, another sociologist who's done a lot of work recently on the whole question of people being a part of a church and then what he describes as de-churching. And he's kind of studied this over the last few years and just to, what are the patterns? And one of the things he's noticed is, I, I realize sometimes you think, well, people are de-churching because of politics or this or that, and that's all true, but he's discovered one of the most prominent reasons people kind of pull out of church or kind of become complacent here is simply they move, right? You move, you relocate, end up in another place, and you start over, and somehow in the course of starting over, it just, other things become a priority. So sometimes a change in circumstances kind of, kind of locks us into this approach, this way of life. I would say another Another thing is busyness. This is kind of related to changing circumstances. We hit a new season of life. Our lives become busier. And, and somehow in the course of that, we kind of we lose energy for pursuing God or being a part of his church or prioritizing the rhythms that continue to remind us of the gospel. Maybe, you know, for instance, we're part of a family and we hit that season where our kids are getting older and all of a sudden there are all these activities. There's sports, there's extracurricular things. And if we're honest, it's now these activities that control our decision-making as a family. And tragically, for some, in our desire to give our kids all these opportunities, we lose sight of what is eternally significant in their lives. Sometimes it's busyness. I think another factor uh, for some people, kind of just beginning to drift, to become complacent in following Christ, is it's just the reality of doubts, right? The, <laughs> the more life experience we have, the more likely we are to experience situations we don't understand, situations we find troubling or hard, and sometimes we look at those and we... We just wonder, where is God? I never thought this would happen, and it did. And tragically, too, sometimes it feels like we're in churches or Christian environments where we can't ask hard questions or we can't kind of really talk to other people. And so in our isolation with these doubts and not really knowing how to process it or how to talk to people or even how to engage Scripture and God with our doubts, 
we just kind of take a step back and we just, we just drift. We become complacent. We become apathetic. The final kind of thing that I can mention, and I'm sure we could come up with a longer list, is just triviality. Let's be honest, sometimes God becomes less of a priority in our lives just because we're, we're consumed with that which is trivial. We, let it, we just let it consume our time, our energy, our emotions, and it just pushes other things to the back. One of our sons, as a university student, was applying for a particular program in this college. And as part of the application, he had to do a one-on-one interview with one of the professors. And in the course of this interview, she asked him what I thought was a really fascinating question. She looked at him and she said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk me through your typical day. Interesting question, isn't it? So that's what he did. Okay, so what does your typical day look like here as a college student? And that's what he did. He took some time and he walked her through his typical day. And she listened intently. And I kid you not, when he was done, she looked at him and she called him by name and she said, you know, you waste a lot of time. (laughs) And uh, I remember he was telling us his story. And I found my, I mean, it, you know, it's a funny story, and it's like, you know, as a parent, you're, you're glad sometimes other people are speaking into your kids' lives like that. But I also thought, you know, some of the stuff that she was complaining about, I do too, right? And you and I, we, you know, some of us, we're really good at just letting our, our lives fill up with that which is trivial. And again, It's not like this is going to be dramatic, right? I mean, and this is what's so dangerous about what Jesus is describing. It's not not like there's there's necessarily going to be one crisis moment or or something dramatic that is obvious to everyone. It's just you're kind of just drifting. You're complacent. You're apathetic. And tragically, at some point, you may wake up and find yourself at this place where you don't want to be. So what, what is Jesus' response? What is Jesus' response to this church? (laughs) Well, let's continue, just verse two. Jesus says, wake up, (laughs) I love this, wake up, strengthen what wrote, what remains and is about to die. Now there, notice what he's implying is, I know this may not seem like a big deal, but there is part of you that is dying all along the way. So wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. It's a powerful image. Wake up. What is Jesus saying? He says, look, you're, you're sleepwalking through life. And in saying that, I think he's saying two things. First, you're not aware of the dangers, the consequences that will result from the choices that you're making. And I think he's also saying, and you're not aware of the opportunities to grow in this relationship and to be a part of something much bigger than yourself that I am giving you even now. 
I read this and my mind goes back to a family memory. So um, when our boys were small, we were actually living in Fargo, North Dakota. If you're familiar with geography, Fargo is very flat. I mean, there's no elevation in that area. And what this means is when, when our kids were little, there were a couple of years where, in, in fact, they had just never experienced mountains before. And one summer, uh, we were going to San Diego to visit family, so we, you know, scheduled the flight schedule. Left, I think we left pretty early. Flew out of Fargo, then we get a connecting flight out of Denver. And, you know, we get everybody on the plane, we're on this connecting flight, and coming out of Denver, I kid you not, the skies over Colorado are crystal clear. And for a few moments, we get just these amazing views of the Rocky Mountains. But by this time, our kids, you know, I think we had to get them up early. They're, 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 they're sleeping, right? And, you know, one of the cardinal rules of flying with kids, do not wake them up. And so, uh, so they sleep through this experience. And then as, as our flight is getting close to San Diego, as we're kind of starting to come in on approach, we wake them up and you raise the blinds. And as you come in from the east into the San Diego airport, San Diego airport's kind of, it's a beautiful area right in downtown San Diego. But as you're coming in from the east on approach, the you actually go through a, a couple of minutes where you're kind of flying over these small hills and sand dunes. And by this time, our sons are awake and one of them looks out the window and he sees these little, you know, these little humps, these little sand dunes. And he goes, Dad! Look at the mountains! <laughs> and I kid you not, my first thought as a dad was, oh, I've got to get you out more, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> you got it. And then my second thought was, oh, if only, if only you had been awake when we came out of Denver, right? You have no idea what you just missed. And, then, and, and Jesus is looking at this church. And maybe even this morning he's looking at you and saying, look at your life. You're just, you're just settling for sand dunes. And you don't get it. There is so much more that I'm inviting you to be a part of. There's so much more that I'm inviting you to experience as my follower. Furthermore, there is so much danger that you will encounter if you don't wake up. And so Jesus looks at this church. And he looks at us. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So how do we do that? Well, notice very quickly, as the passage continues, notice in the, actually the very next verse, three commands. Here's Jesus' response. Um, three commands. First, he says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Second command, hold it fast. Third command, and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. 
So Jesus' response is, is, is simple. It's pretty basic. He says, first of all, he says, I want you to remember. Remember. Remember what you've been taught. Remember the message of the gospel. And of course, this is, first of all, the message of Jesus. This, this involves remembering who Christ is. And this is an important theme in Revelation as you read the book as a whole. I mean, in chapter 1, you have this amazing vision of who Christ is. And then in chapter 4, you have this amazing vision of the throne room of heaven and the reality and willingness of Christ to bring about redemption. Furthermore, in remembering who Christ is, we're, we're also to remember who we now are as followers of Jesus. Again, we are reminded of this, particularly in chapter 1. We are told that we are deeply loved and that we have been liberated from sin so that we can now be a part of what God is doing through his kingdom. So when Jesus says, remember, it's remember who I am and what I'm doing and therefore remember who you are. I think this is also echoed in the promise section as you read the rest of this letter. Jesus says, look, I want you to overcome this complacency. And as you do, I, I want you to remember who you are. And in re reminding them of who they are, he says, I will never blot you out of the book of life. It's a powerful image. Interestingly, it's an image found in other places, both in biblical scripture as well as Jewish literature. And I think it's also an image that would have resonated in a Roman context. Because you see, in kind of Roman cultural norms, at times when certain citizens lost favor in their particular community, their names might be erased out of the ledger. Likewise, over an extended period of time, if certain emperors, particularly after they were dead, kind of lost favor or they, you know, they were viewed negatively, in some cases, people would go back and they would remove their names from monuments and inscriptions. Uh, to give you an example, let me just show you one inscription. When we were there this summer, this is in Thyatira. It's, it's an inscription to a particular emperor who, after he was dead, he lost favor. And if you zoom in a little farther, do you see his name has been blotted out? Guess what? It turns out cancel culture isn't that new of a thing after all, right? <laughs> the Romans, that is cancel culture, right? And in the midst of growing up in a culture that did this, Jesus looks at these people and says, I will never blot you out of my book of life. You are now related to me. I'm the source of your identity and security. You know, throughout this year, as, as we're talking about growing deeper and wider, we're, we're wanting to give you resources to kind of help you just establish certain spiritual habits and rhythms. This is why we're making these cards available throughout the year. This is why we're putting resources on our website. And I think one of the purposes of these patterns is that we would continue to remind ourselves of the gospel, right? We're taking time in our lives just to remember who Christ is and who we are in him. So the first command, Jesus says, look, I want you to remember. You've just got to make sure you're continuing to remember who I am and what I'm doing and who you are in me. And then the next two flow out of that. Then you have the command to obey, 
and the command to repent. And here's how I think the, here's how I think the logic of the passage is flowing. The idea here is, look, I want you to remember, right? I want you to remember who I am and who you are in me. I want you to make space in your life, you know, to, to learn this, to hear these words, to read these words, to, to grow in your understanding of the gospel. And as you do that, over time, you're to put this into practice, right? It, it's not, hey, I went to church. Uh, the pastor, he gave this great message. I put it in a box. Now I put it back on the shelf, and Monday I'm pulling out another box, right? No, the expectation here is, look, as you remember, you're going to be learning. And as you're learning, there will be certain steps that you need to put into action. Furthermore, as you're learning, you will realize along the way, sometimes you're making missteps. Sometimes you're getting off the path, and when you do that, you're going to need to repent, So we avoid this cycle by, in essence, walking in a different way. By walking in a way where we are learning who Christ is and who we are, and we do this with the expectation that as we learn, that that is going to just kind of slowly take root in how we approach life, the decisions that we make, the responsibilities that we have. And furthermore, we also understand, hey, we're not going to get it perfectly, so all along the way, when we get off track, when we make mistakes, when we're confronted by truths in Scripture and realize, man, I was out of line there, we repent. And when you embrace this, you, you won't drift. So Jesus says, wake up. <laughs> don't, don't sleepwalk through life. I want you to overcome your complacency, your apathy. And with that, you will experience a new vitality as you grow in your relationship with me. Now, in embracing this passage, there's one specific group I just want to address, and maybe you fall into this category. I realized this morning in talking about, you know, kind of spiritual apathy or complacency, for some of us, maybe what's come to mind is this. Someone in your life, someone close to you, a friend, a relative, a parent, a child, a spouse. And when you look in your lives, or when you look in their lives, what you see is spiritual complacency. And that can be hard. I know for some of us as parents, one of the hardest things we experience is seeing this in our own children. And at times you wonder, what do I do? Well, if you're in that category, first of all, I hope you realize you're not alone. And I hope you realize that we really want to be a church family that walks through the hard stuff with you, whatever that hard stuff looks like. 
Likewise, if you're in that category, I also just want to remind you the story's not yet over. And if you're in that category, I would just bring you back to Jesus' words as well. Because in, in this hard season, first of all, remember who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. And I think part of the way we do that is just by modeling it. I think in these kinds of situations, particularly for those of us who are parents, one of the most powerful tools God gives us is just the power of modeling what this looks like. We don't get it perfectly, but, but we can do this with integrity. And the truth is there is an influence is an influence that comes with a life lived in integrity, whether you realize it or not. So if you're in this category, just, okay, God, I want, I want to live the kind of life that you're describing here and embrace that. And then allow your journey to be a journey of learning obedience. And as you do that, I would say, as you seek to be obedient, don't do that in a defensive or belligerent way. But do it in a way that is open to conversation and open to questions. And when you get it wrong, when you mess up, make sure you repent. And in the course of this journey, just be open to ways in which God might be at work, even ways you don't understand. Now for all of us, hear again what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, I, I don't want you to sleepwalk through life. I, I, don't, I don't want this just to be Right, This compartment in your life where you kind of pull out the box from time to time and you fill it with stuff and then you kind of just put it back on the shelf. I don't, I don't want you to just settle for sand dunes. When the life I'm inviting you to be a part of is so much different than that. So wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the seven churches, in some ways, at times I feel like this, <laughs> of all the churches, this, this was the most dangerous situation. Because in some ways, as you looked at their lives, it's, it's not like there was something glaringly wrong. It's not like there was there's some crisis moment that was obvious to all. It's not like there was some situation where people were clearly way out of line that anyone would have caught. No, no. They were just drifting. They were just complacent. They were just apathetic. Father, I, I realize that even as that is true then, it can be true for us now. 
So I would ask that even now, perhaps some of us need to hear these words in our own lives. Wake up. <laughs> Wake up. Wake up. And Father, I pray that through the work of your Spirit, what would truly wake us up is the fact that we're remembering, that we're getting a deepening sense of the wonder, the majesty, the grandeur of what you have done through the work of Jesus Christ. Could you just deepen and enlarge our sense of the work of the gospel? Could you deepen and enlarge our, our just sense and experience of the depth of your love manifested through the work of Jesus Christ? And could that awaken us to walk in obedience and repentance day by day so that this isn't simply a part of our lives, this is our lives. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe this morning God's really challenged you, spoken to you, convicted you. Maybe there's some things you're wrestling with and you've just kind of kept them to yourself. And particularly if that's the case, I, I just want to encourage you, don't kind of just, don't leave, <laughs> don't just leave by yourself. We're going to have members of our prayer team available at the front, and if we can pray with you along any matter, just know that we want to do that. So we're going to be available. I realize it can be a little awkward coming down to the front, but know that this is your church family, and, and we want to be a part in helping you take next steps in following Jesus. So now as you go, did you hear Jesus' words? To wake up. Because complacency isn't simply a bad thing. It can also be a deadly thing.